0: Forletta Investigates. Welcome to Forletta Investigates. Investigative security consultant Larry Forletta is a highly decorated former DEA agent and member of the Maryland State Police. Forletta Investigates aims to provide information on real life encounters involving law enforcement, drug trafficking, and actual investigations. Listen to the show every Tuesday as we approach topics of crime and other issues affecting our communities with someone who has worked within law enforcement for over 25 years. Here is your host, Larry Forletta. Hello, everyone. I want to welcome
1: our guest, and I'm honored and fortunate to have him on our podcast. Our guest was the former assistant special agent in charge of the DEA uh, Tampa office, and I want to welcome Mike Powers. How are you today, Mike? I'm doing fine. I'm in sunny Tampa, and... uh... The weather is uh, is perfect there. Yeah. Okay, great. So I I believe that you will agree with the success of DEA and their agents uh, at times really go unherald. You know, with with the
2: administrations that we've had and uh, the fact that they're, we even have cities now that have made small amounts of heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, etc., uh, not not illegal anymore. Um, I, I mean, I think we're heading towards obviously a more liberal situation. Uh, right. Who, I guess uh, it remains to be seen.
1: Right. So, Mike, you served our country twice. Uh, first, you served as a captain in the United States Marine Corps in Vietnam. At that point, while you were there, you worked with you were a recon marine, and you worked with the CIA uh, in the in the Mekong Delta and then you were advisor to the Vietnamese regular units. And then uh, you started your career with uh, DEA. And, and if you want to talk a little bit about uh, your, your situation in Vietnam, we'll be happy to listen to you. <laughs> well,
2: again, that's, all, that's old hat. But uh, um, I actually joined the Marine Corps in 1963. Uh, I became second lieutenant and went through the basic school and um went to the third marine division which was then in okinawa had a brief tour in vietnam in 64 but there was nothing going on came back and was lucky um i went i stayed in small unit management i was a platoon leader uh, in a recon company um, which i tried out for a very elite uh, force recon in marine corps and um I was lucky to make it and uh, stayed a couple of years with them. Uh, We did a lot of parachuting, a lot of fun stuff, uh, learned how to scuba dive, did a lot of uh, scouting and patrolling, went to schools. And then in uh, 1967, um, I was off to Vietnam and the CIA actually picked me up and asked me to work in the Mekong Delta with... um, vietnamese irregulars regulars down there which meant a lot of them were uh former convicts and that kind of thing but um they were tough people and uh, i spent a year and a half living with them in the mekong delta actually in vinh long province which was uh a hot spot in the delta was there for the Tet offensive in february of 68 uh, which uh we, we had a lot of fun in doing that, to say the least. Uh, not, I wasn't too sure at that point if I was either going to make it back, but we did. And um, I always say in uh, November of 1968, I was in Vietnam. And in March of 1969, I was in New York as a DVA or BNDD. Then um, made a quick transition. I came back. And decided that I had to do something a little more exciting than selling men's shoes. So uh, I was lucky enough to come on with uh, then BNDD Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, which was one of the predecessors to DEA in New York. Uh, and from there, I became an agent in New York, as I said, and would uh, like to tell people what what it was like in 1960. Uh, nine in New York, if uh, if I could, um, sure, that be all right. Absolutely, no absolutely. Go ahead. Now, uh, the early days, the early days, let me say that in March of 1969, um, I started with the EA and I went to my first meeting. We were at 90 Church Street, which was actually right next to the World Trade Center, which was just starting to be built in 1969. And, um, as you can tell from my accent, I'm from New York anyway, so I, I fit it in with New York. But my first meeting in New York was uh, ran, run by the uh, training officer in New York, a, a group super named Ben Fitzgerald, who was actually an attorney. And um, at the end of the meeting, he introduced me. I sat down and I thought that was the end. And then he said, uh, everyone in the room who hasn't worked undercover in the last two months stand up. So even though it was my first day in the job, I stood up and looked around and it was some other people that stood up. And then he said, anybody that hasn't made a registered case this month, stand up. So I stood up, sat down. He said, anyone who doesn't have a registered informant, stand up. So I stood up, sat down. And that was the end of the meeting. And uh, they assigned me to a group in New York, a guy named Clarence Cook. and um, so he said, "Well, we're working tonight." I said, "Good, I'm working too." They said, "Do you have any questions?" I said, "Yes. How do I get an informant? Open a case and work undercover because next month at the meeting, I'm not standing up again." And I did. And um, that was that was my introduction to, to New York. Um, I was working undercover within within a week. Um, I, I went out the first the first time I was going out undercover, uh, a guy named Tommy O'Grady, who was uh, an agent in New York, now deceased, um, said to me, come here, kid. You're gonna have to change your shoes. I went, what do you mean? He said, crooks don't wear those kind of shoes. They wear buckle shoes. So we switched shoes. I mean, they would go out and work undercover. And uh, it went on from there. Actually, Rudy Giuliani ch- tried my first narcotics uh, case in New York um, that, I, that I put together. And um, I decided in New York that uh, it was target rich. And there was plenty of people that were selling dope. And um, along with the rest of New York, uh, I started working, I think, pretty hard. Um we were paid then what they called AUO, which was uh, actually like 39, 40 hours a month for overtime. And uh, in my in group in New York, we were working instead of uh, 39 or 40, we were working at least 100 hours uh, of overtime per month. Uh, when you went to work in New York, uh, and a lot of times you didn't go home for a couple of days actually had beds in the gym and, um, well, actually we when we moved, uh, we, we moved to offices, but, uh, they put beds in the gym and, uh, you spent a lot of time there, but, uh, New York, I think, um, uh, was a place to, uh, to open up as, a, as, a DEA agent. Um, as I said, it was target rich, um, uh, heroin and cocaine were the, uh, drugs of choice in New York. Um, didn't make any difference ethnicity-wise. You know, If you had an informant that told you someone was selling dope, you went after him. And um, I used to say I never really outsmarted anybody. I just outworked them. Uh, we used to, I did search warrants on Christmas, Thanksgiving, New Year's, you name it. Mr. Crooks would never expect you uh, then. Uh, they would expect you to, to hit them on a on a weeknight or uh, even a Saturday night. But um, you come in there um, on a holiday, and they'd look at you like, what are you doing working today?
1: <laughs> yeah. Y- you know, some of those uh, crooks, maybe you're right with maybe some way, some people do investigations. But uh, just uh, my experience working with DEA, just like yours, I mean – we are out there all the time and, uh, you know, they would, uh, you know, be surprised, I guess, if we hit them on a holiday, like an Easter, And I worked an Easter and, uh, they don't understand how dedicated the DE agents really are.
2: Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. We, for a while there, we worked, um, we were working the, the Cuban end of it, uh, up in 135th and Broadway. There was a bar up there called the blue mirror, which was, uh. A, a focal point for for cuban dopers and um we used to spend uh, days watching the blue mirror and just picking up plates and taking pictures of people coming out because they were almost all drug drug peddlers and um, i had a i had a good informant into the blue mirror and uh, as i spent more and more time in new york i, I became obviously more proficient um with uh, with informants and uh, and trying to figure out what the dopers were doing um, actually jumping ahead a little bit uh, at a later date um, they had a, they had two conspiracy groups in new york one in the eastern district one in the southern district and um, so i uh, ended up testifying in a conspiracy trial the conspiracy group took a lot of the people that I had arrested with a couple of one, two, three kilos and put together a big conspiracy case. And I was sitting in the Eastern District in a witness room ready to testify with some of the people I had put in jail like a year or two before. And now they were testifying against their sources of supply. So one of them looked at me and said, you're the guy that arrested me from then then D, from the, you're from the, from the feds, right? I said, yeah. He said, you arrested me. I said, I did. He said, well, what did you get me with? I said, I think we got you with about a kilo and a half or two kilos of, uh, and I can't remember, heroin or coke. And um, he he started laughing. And he says, you used to ride, you used to, you used to drive that yellow Chevrolet, right? The yellow Chevy, which I did. I said yes. He said, "You know, we used to." He said, "You know, we used to move big, big amounts of dope." I said, "No, please tell me." He said, "We used to move it on a Sunday morning at about seven or eight o'clock." He said, "I knew you probably worked Saturday night, but you probably went home around two, three, four o'clock in the morning." He said, "I know, being a good Catholic, you go to church on a Sunday morning with your family." So you weren't even going to be back till the afternoon. So about eight o'clock in the morning, we'd look outside for your yellow Chevrolet. and if it wasn't there, we'd move thirty or forty kilos uh, down the street. And um, and that was a, an epiphany, an awakening, and, and one of the one of the many awakenings I had as the as the goat peddlers. You know, I mean, they had me figured and, and they had me outsmarted, really. When you to right down to it. I thought I was doing really great to get them with, like I said, one, two, three kilos. And, um, they were moving 10 times that amount around me, over me, through me, under me a little bit. Uh, you know, it just shows you that, uh, um, you know, they're, they're out, they're out there thinking too. They're, 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 you know, they're, they're thinking, you know, they're not completely stupid. Um, so that, you know, that was, like I said, uh, Good, you know, good fun, uh, good fun in New York. Um, needless to say, when my um, my roommate from uh, when we went through uh, what they call the academy then, which really wasn't an academy, but went through the three months training for BND, There was a guy named Frank DeMillo. Shortly after we both got back to New York, he was killed in a big shootout up there. And uh, another another epiphany. Uh, you know, I, Obviously, saw plenty of things in Vietnam, plenty of action there, and I'm, I'm back in the thick of it uh, very quickly in New York. Uh, actually, a funny story: the one of the first shootings uh, that I, I didn't participate in, but but you always, you know, as you know, if there is a shooting, you respond to it immediately. It was a guy named Zach Robinson, and uh, the guys that were out there actually shot him nine times. As I remember, and the the only gun you were allowed to use in New York, the only pistol you were allowed to use was a uh, S&W 65, which they gave you when you when you graduated from the academy. Six shot S&W, and Zach Robinson we shot nine times, never with a 38. See, he, he had a bullet in him from <laughs> from 22 long <laughs> rifles to 45, and actually survived. By the way, he actually survived. He was a big fat guy he actually survived and uh, at that time based on that and i guess other shootings the EA said we better we better re- re- revamp push our uh, policy here as far as handguns go oh the 38 the 38 went out the window as you know and you could pretty much carry what you want to but um uh, knew you i i always i just uh, mentored an agent uh, who's now out in los angeles uh, Got him through the academy, and uh, he was uh, waiting. Uh, now, now you pick your, as you probably know. Now you pick uh, your post of duty, um, like yeah. within the first week or two of, uh, of the academy. And uh, he, he called me at home. He said, "Where do I go?" I said, "What's your choices?" And he gave a couple, and he said, "Los Angeles." I said, "Yeah, you want to go to a big city? You know, you want you want a target-rich environment." And he's on the meth task force out there now, and uh, he's doing doing real well, you know, doing real well. But uh, once again, I mean, you know, you go to a small town, and uh, you have to work hard for, for the targets. In New York, it's not not difficult at all to find someone selling dope. That's for sure.
1: Well, then you spent you spent a significant amount of time in New York, Mike, and then uh, eventually you went uh, you went overseas.
2: I went to Malaysia and Thailand, and uh, another, another target-rich environment, uh, Malaysia at that point, just now, now, um, now fast forward to, like, 1977. And um, Malaysia at that point was a, a transit country or a source of supply for all of Europe. And uh, then there was number three heroin and number four heroin. Number four heroin was the white uh, China; they call it China Gold, but the uh, WUO, W-O globe, was the was the big was the big kilo package. So yeah, they had uh, what they call number three heroin uh, in, uh, in 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 Malaysia. They were making it. Uh, it was a lot less difficult to make than number four heroin. Um, as you're probably aware, um, heroin is a very fragile crop and it's a difficult crop to produce. Unlike, for instance, uh, net, which is done in a in any pretty, almost anywhere, including the back of a pickup truck, um, co- cocaine, coca, which uh, actually grows almost wild down in, in South America in the Andes. You know, heroin is uh, made from the opium poppy, which is a very fragile crop, and actually, only um, um, can be grown at, at altitude with a certain amount of uh, moisture and uh, and a lot of chemicals to produce with what what uh, is known as uh, from opium to opium base to morphine to heroin. So um, what they did was they they. They didn't uh, produce the, the number four white heroin that everybody really liked. But in Europe, they were using this number three, which uh, was about like 45% pure. Um, and they were sending it back in large quantities, but usually through tourists. So we developed a whole informant program uh, using tourists and once again had some decent informants, some very good informants into the uh, the problem then was that uh, everybody that was involved in it, even though they were Malaysian um, by uh, by birth, they were all Chinese, um, and they spoke very little English. So the informants that we had, um, it became difficult to get informants. We had to get Chinese informants um, who spoke English to us, and then spoke at least one or two dialects for the for the Chinese end of it. Um, Mandarin, uh, was not a language then that, um uh, although it is now, it was not a language then that, uh, the Chinese uh, spoke. They were more ethnic and, um, spoke, uh, Cantonese, a, a lot of them uh, from Canton province, uh, uh, Fukanese from, uh, Fukan province, I think, et cetera, et cetera. So they, they had their own. They had their own uh, language uh, barriers uh, as well. Uh, but we developed some great informants. There was a guy named Matty Ma who was in Amsterdam. Um, we were sending suitcases full of uh, dope back there. The, the cops in Amsterdam uh, did a great job of uh, putting in wiretaps and uh, and following them. Uh, they had. Uh, uh, cases upon cases upon cases and uh, that we were sending back um almost the uh, the kind of a controlled delivery program uh, or at least in my mind the predecessor to it uh, which 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 paid dividends uh, at a later date um as I, as I said i don't know whether you heard me i said you know we we actually set a record there uh, maddie uh, i'm sorry a guy named steve say myself uh, worked undercover and we uh, we we got I think fifty keys of uh, of heroin, which was you know, quite a bit of heroin at that time. Um, well, also, another although not I can't say a, a, a funny story, but a, a strange story. Um, years later, when I was back, uh, I was reading uh, the Washington Post, and I saw just a little blurb. It said Malaysia uh, executes its first female. And uh, then, of course, uh, Malaysia and Singapore, they executed people for uh, large quantities of dope. And um, the female, uh, I, I read the name, and it was one that uh, um, actually I did undercover. Uh, I was posed as an airline pilot. They delivered, I think, ten, five or 10 kilos of heroin to me. And uh, there were a couple of guys and a woman. And uh, they ended up executing her uh, for, for, for the uh, for the case itself. Um, one, of the, one of the strange parts of uh, working, um, and not only in Europe, as you may be aware, or even Far East, is what they call the agent provocateur law. In other words, you can't provoke the act. So, so when we were working undercover, Right before the bus went down, we'd give the signal, but then we'd have to get out of the area there. We'd either have to run away, jump in a car, and drive off or whatever, because if we were there, we, w- we were subject to arrest as well. So not only did you have to worry about the crooks, but you had to worry about the cops coming in. Obviously, they were in on the whole thing, but you couldn't be there um, when the arrest went down. Um, so, I, you know, it was... Doing business there was, was, was a little different than doing business here. Um, doing those cases kind of led that uh, in uh, 1983, I came to Tampa, um, very small. Was, I was the RAC had a resident agent in charge. Very small office at that time, and they, um, I hate to say they weren't doing much. Um, I quickly uh went to tampa police department who gave me a, a sergeant and, and six cops and they said have at it and uh and we did and uh, we we found that uh, there was a needless to say a large group here in uh, tampa that uh, were uh, importing large quantities of cocaine um the control delivery program um like to say that, that we developed it here, although a guy named John Pulley from from Miami was was also instrumental in it. Uh, control delivery program was uh, we would have informants who would sell us um, as transporters of of, uh, of the cocaine from South America. Um, mostly, almost all Colombians. Um, they would come up here and look at us, look at our warehouse. Look at our undercover guys, and then um, ba- mainly due, due to the fact that we had really good informants, um, they would uh, give us some upfront money. Um, we got as little as $10,000. We got as much as a million dollars. They would give us that money up front just based on a handshake that we would bring the dope in. Um, we would send an airplane down to Columbia. Um, it was actually uh, romanticized uh, in the Tom Cruise movie um, I think Made in America if you, uh, if, if you remember right.
1: it. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. and,
2: and that, right, And that movie actually that movie actually was, was accurate um, if you remember the one scene where he's actually cutting jungle to try to move his airplane back a couple of feet um, because he's got to take off on an unapproved <laughs> runway. Uh, and and w- exactly what happened to him happened to to us many times, where they just keep putting cocaine in the place in the plane, until the plane was, you know, over, like double overgrowth. Um, we had uh, then the airplanes weren't what they are now. We had we were using mainly Cessna 421s. Um, you yeah, got the undercover plane, and of course the two pilots that were in it were um our informants so um the informants would land at the strip they'd gas them up and then start putting the cocaine on the plane and then in the end the Navy would even try to put one of their guys on the plane and like you know our guys would say hey we can't take off um so you you were limited by the amount of uh weight that you had in the airplane I actually started taking flying lessons uh, because I wanted to understand exactly what was going on there. And uh, we had, you know, m- many DEA headquarters people come down, including the then administrator Jack Warren, And um, we we would give them a total briefing on on the problems that we had bringing cocaine in from South America, particularly Colombia. Um, of course, once we brought the cocaine in here. They would ask us to also deliver it, so we would deliver it to Miami, New York, Chicago, wherever, and once again, um, pick up a, a large amount of money. Um, we charge three thousand dollars a kilo, transportation fees, um, and a lot of a lot of times even five thousand dollars a kilo. So you have five hundred kilos, and you have quite a bit of you know, quite a bit of money coming to you when you deliver the cocaine. And um, it turned out to be a, a wildly successful program. Uh, I was actually doing uh, controlled delivery cases for other officers as well, you know, who would come to us and say, how do we do these cases? And we get pilots and we get the planes to send them to South America. So uh, the controlled delivery program um, in my, in my estimation was, it was a huge success. Um, you know, we, we, one year there, uh, just a damp RO, I think we brought in like 10 or 15,000 pounds of cocaine. Um, well that, that, you know, that's not a record, but what is a record is all of that cocaine brought in millions and millions of dollars. Um, uh, to you know, to, to, to the to the United States, and um, of course we would uh, spend some of that money, um, but not only for our case, but for future cases. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, I think the uh, the control delivery program, and it goes on today, by the way, it's just continued. Um, when we went from we went from airplanes to boats, uh, we started using. Uh, Traders and that kind of thing to bring to bring the cocaine up, and even though the crooks were doing it, now we were doing it as well, and um, I think it put uh, you know put the, some fear in them every time uh, every time one of them went down. Uh, the Colombians used to tell us about Tampa. They said uh, the Colombians uh, developed uh, a phrase about Tampa. Tampa as muy trampa. Uh, Tampa is a trap. Uh, so. Then once again, we moved, we moved our program away from Tampa and started using places like Sarasota, um, which is only 60 miles down the road here. The Colombians didn't know that. Um, you know, they no longer had to come to Tampa, so they were happy. Uh, and uh, the program, I retired in 1994. And at that time, the, the program program was uh, was doing well. I, to my knowledge it's doing well as of uh, today. I mean they still the control delivery program is still still in existence.
1: Yeah, no doubt Mike, it was uh, a great program that you guys developed. Uh, it still is today and how it disrupts the uh, the cartels and their operations. And uh, DEA has always been on the forefront of coming up with new plans, new ideas and, and addressing uh, the issues at hand.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I agree with you. And uh, um, you know, today, of course, the 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 problem is uh, terrorism, and and hopefully DEA uh, is developed programs because um, dope and terrorism go hand in hand. Lebanon, as if you remember, was a perfect example. Um, Lebanon uh, was a was a transit point for heroin, at least at one point. Uh, I'm I'm a little aged, yes. Needless to say, so I don't know exactly what's going on today. But uh, um, yeah, they've got that. They've got their hands full. Um, We yeah, I'm talking about one more case here. Uh, We we culminated uh, 1990. um, We we had the U.S. record of cocaine. We got nine thousand pounds of coke here um, on a on a freighter that came up from Latisia. Uh, Colombia. and um, if you if you look on a map, uh, Leticia is actually very southern part of Colombia, but it's right where um, Brazil um, and um, Ecuador actually meet. so there's, there's like three three countries that come together there. But what's important is the Amazon River uh, flows through Leticia. And, of course, flows westward out to the Atlantic. And uh, a guy named Michael Salikas, who's actually a Greek from tarpon Springs, Florida, which is a town outside of Tampa. Uh, Michael Salikas um, was uh, famous uh, in the United States. He was called the Monkey Man. And uh, he used to import monkeys uh, for research purposes into the United States. Well, not only was he important monkeys, but he was important cocaine. When I got here, um, they would search his ships religiously when they came in. He had a couple of uh, small freighters, actually. Amazon Trader, Amazon Sky, maybe one or two more. And um, they would get some solid information that there was large amounts of cocaine on these freighters. And customs would searched the, the boats and never and never came up with any cocaine. And uh, he would bring up huge amounts of cedar logs uh, that were that were used here in the United States for decorative uh, uh, purposes and, uh, and, and 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 you know wo- wo- wooden situations in your house. Well, they'd bring the, they'd bring all of the wood off and then they'd search the boat. Well, we uh, we got some information, and the information actually came from Colombia. It was an anonymous source. We uh, nicknamed the uh, the source Deep Throat. But Deep Throat told us that he was putting the cocaine in the lumber. And all of a sudden, it was like an epiphany. Aha, uh-huh. of course. And that's why they never came up with any dope. It was already off the boat by the time they searched the boat. So he came in with a load of lumber on the Amazon Trader into St. Petersburg, Florida, which is just outside of Tampa. And he had a million board feet of uh, of cedar logs, cedar wood. And he actually wrapped the cocaine boards inside of bundles with Boards on the outside that had no cocaine, and then even surrounded them with on those that had no cocaine at all. So the boat, the uh, the boat came in, the lumber came off. Um, went to a warehouse. We bugged the warehouse. We put a camera in the warehouse, and we actually had pictures of Salika's picking out certain boards and moving them to his warehouse in Tarpon Springs, Florida. Ultimately, um, I decided to take the thing down. Uh, We had some Colombians up here from Colombia, needless to say. Salikas, who we found out was actually heading for Greece Uh, probably, so he wouldn't be arrested if, if the thing went bad on him. We arrested everybody but then the question was, we had a million board feet. How the heck are we gonna figure out which ones have the cocaine in them? And um, I went to the airport and got some uh, x-ray machines they weren't using. We started putting the boards through the x-ray machine. And again, long story short, uh, we came up with about 9,000 pounds of coke, which uh, which was a record then in the United States. But, uh, but since, since since it's been broken many times, or several times anyway, needless to say. But, um uh, I always, I always say, well, we had, we, we got that record anyway. Uh, but, uh, like I said, it was, it was soon broken. Uh, and thank God, you uh, thank God for that. So, um, you know, I, it was, uh, yeah, you know, we went, but, you know, the, the main thing, Larry, was I, I always, um, Made it fun for our office. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I mean, DEA, DEA at that time was serious business. Was serious people, but I mean, I, I had so much fun doing that stuff. I mean, I'd go right back to it today if I could. Uh, yeah, and I think A lot everybody of us in play. my office did too. You know, we yeah. have, absolutely. But but you know what? You know why? One of the reasons was it was fun. You know, it was it was fun. I mean, um, you know, my, my my wife used to say, "You go to work every day, and you can't wait." And I could, and I couldn't. I I'd wake up and I go, oh, "Man, I can't wait for today." You know, it's you against the bad guy, and he's holding all the cards. You know, and 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 to catch him, you either need a good informant, or you have to work harder than him. Um, of course, um, we had some help with the. With uh, listening devices and uh, good informants, uh, wiretaps, uh, in- information coming from other sources, including overseas, uh, a great intelligence uh, service. Uh, you know, if you will remember, I mean, they started the uh, the intelligence groups and everything uh, sure. going back into the '70s. And um, I mean, look, you know, the intel. I mean, look at the intelligence that even then we had, and today it's even much better. You, know, you sit down at the computer and you can find out, you can find out every, every everything about everybody, including what the order they use. You know, uh, so, um, and I, you know, I think especially overseas the crooks, I don't think they know that. Um, you know, but when you when you look at it today, I mean, you know, look at it today, you're using submarines, so, to yeah, for them. sure, yeah, no doubt. Tough, you know, tough, tough going, yeah, tough going, you know, tough going. Yep. Hopefully, DEA. Uh, hopefully, DEA is, is uh, rising to the occasion, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I, I think they are, Mike.
2: I hope. Yeah, I hope you're right. You know, I hope you're right. I still think staying in touch with them, needless to say. Yeah, uh, right. My agent out who's out in Los Angeles. Uh, my agent out in Los Angeles tells me that the the meth group out there is is doing real really well, you know, really well.
1: I guess none of us really retire from DEA because we always. Uh, <laughs> try to keep our contacts and what's going on with the agency and and things that are happening uh, all the time. So uh, I, I, this is what, what all of us do, I guess, to a certain extent. We never really cut the ties 100% uh, because we're so interested in, in what takes place and how much all of us, a lot of us, has uh, respected the agency and, and the men and women that work there. I, I, I couldn't agree more, you know, I mean,
2: I, you know, there was some very, very dedicated people, man. And I, I know there's got to be some really dedicated people now. Um, and uh, the, the job, obviously, in some respects has gotten harder. Uh, hopefully uh, due to some of the things we did, maybe it's gotten a little easier, you know, <laughs> if, uh, if, uh, they say, well, that didn't work and that did work. But, right. uh, you know, I, uh, You know, I I was actually when I left DEA, um, I went to the state attorney here, and uh, in Florida, and uh, I was just an agent, and um, I started working my cases through DEA here, and actually started bringing asset forfeiture money into the state attorney's office, and um, you know, I was working cases now on the other end of it where. uh, you know, I was no longer the supervisor, but I was the guy that was putting the cases together and, uh, you know, go back to your roots. And sure. um, I really, I really, en- I really enjoyed that. Um, uh, and even even after that, uh, Larry, uh, I um, became a private investigator, but I, I, I always tried to do narcotics cases and uh, bring, um, you know, bring the, bring the cases and the informants to DEA. Um, and I did. Um, so yeah, you're right. I kept my I kept not only my roots, but uh, you know, kept my perspective, and, and I stayed up with DDA, yeah, which was really good and a lot and a lot of fun.
1: Well, Mike, to wrap things up here, um, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to come on the show and talk about uh, your career, your adventure, um, and I also want to say uh, thank you for your service in Vietnam because a lot of people have gone unrecognized and again for your service at DEA. So with that in mind, Mike, uh, thank you once again and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Well, Larry, it was my, it was my pleasure and, and and thank you. You know, it was, it was, I'm honored that you would even think of me. Well, Mike, you're a true legend of DEA without a doubt. And, uh, again, I appreciate it and uh, take <laughs> care of yourself. All right, bud. All right. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Forletta Investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to FCISLLC.com.